Super Talk Mississippi media production. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I've been really looking forward to this segment because it's, it's a very practical and important conversation about the beast that we're at war with in this coronavirus. And I've got Dr. Nicholas Condor, Conger, excuse me, who is both a board-certified uh, physician in internal medicine and also infectious diseases. So it couldn't come at a better time for us to have this conversation. So welcome to Coast View, doctor, and we appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I know you've been a busy man, I bet. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so I would ask you, did you ever think we would be in this situation? But given what your specialty is, I bet the answer is no, you never expected that. I bet you did, didn't you? You know, infectious disease doctors and, and epidemiologists, we have talked about outbreaks in the past. And uh, and we go to our national conferences and they say, you know, what could be the next pathogen that comes? And in fact, coronavirus has come up as one of those answers because these are uh, viruses that are relatively newly described within the last 10 to 20 years. And, and people are largely non-immune. But I can tell you, I never thought we'd ever be to the point where we um, don't have much to do to stop the spread other than social distancing. You know, that that's a bit of a surprise for me, for sure. This is scary, too, given the the nature of this particular disease. Um, just from your perspective, for the for the layman out there, you know, they've heard this before. But just from your perspective, what makes this one so different and dangerous? Well, I think it's a combination of things. First, what I just mentioned was a largely non-immune population, so just no innate immunity uh, to this respiratory virus at all. That's the first part. You know, the second part is the uh, the contagiousness. You know, there's a there's a kind of fancy term called the R naught, which means how many people does each person infect, and we're still figuring that out for this virus, but it seems to be quite contagious, and so you have a very contagious virus. Uh, another factor would be the fact that this virus seems to have a mix of people without symptoms who are able to transmit it. That that changes the game. And then you, and then the mortality rate. You know, while it's 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 lower than initially publicized, it's it's probably around 0.5 percent. Still, that makes it five times more deadly than the flu. So I think those four factors all combined is what's driving this to be such a bad outbreak. I think one of the, you know, in my conversations with mayors and others, you know, I think, you know, the feedback that I'm getting is the general public, for the most part, is observing social distancing, they're protecting themselves, they're protecting the vulnerable, but at the same time, there's this small percentage, but important percentage of people who sort of see what they're hearing in the news as all clear Light bulbs, you know, turn back on again. Let's go. Let's go run and enjoy life. It's not like that, is it? No, you know. So, I, I guess, um, you know, the, I guess the real crux here is how do we get out of this, right? How do we get out of this? And um, and I think the way we get out of it is slowly. You know, what have we bought in these in this this four to six weeks? We bought the ability to test. We bought the ability to experiment with different treatments that we have available to us. We're still not really creating new ones. Um, yes. And so in that time frame, that this time that's got us, now we have to move forward, but we have to do it carefully. And so if everyone that went out and we went back to life as normal, we would still get this huge surge that we wouldn't be ready for. Uh, but if we came out carefully so that we can open up the economy, people can get back to work, people's livelihoods can go back, 
people's businesses aren't closing. You know, that's what we need to do, but we need to do it with safe, still social distancing measures so that we don't have this massive second wave that puts us right back to where we began. And, you know, I mean, I mean, this is not you predicting that we're going to have in, in most cases in most pandemics, there's a second and there's a third wave. So talk about that for a minute, because people see, don't really understand that. It's not like it's not like a hur- the hurricane, the slow moving hurricane and COVID-19 came and now it's kind of subsiding and we're going to slowly but surely get back to normal without a vaccine. We, we're just sitting in the eye of this storm still. And and and, and if we're not careful. We'll see another uptick. There's going to be another uptick anyway, but the question is how how big will that, how steep will that curve be? Talk about that. Exactly. So, you know, there, like you say, when we come out, even if we come out very carefully, there's going to be an uptick. And I hope people don't panic and then go right back to, to completely shutting us down. There has to be some understanding that there's going to be some more cases. And so just thinking again about that, that are not concept I brought up earlier, that's how many people one person infects. And so just for example, let's say one person infects two people. Well, you can see how those two people would infect four people and then and then it would exponentially grow from that. So if you have that small seed of a few people with it, if, if everyone just kind of did everything normally and we went on spreading it, those those exponential spreads would march mm-hmm. and march and march until we had another big outbreak, you know, which mm-hmm. is why we have to be careful with the social distancing and the masks. So what stops that, right? What stops that? A vaccine would stop it. But we, you know, we've heard vaccines take a while. Now they're rushing some out there, but until there's a really good effective vaccine, you know, that, that's one way to stop it. The other way to stop it is herd immunity. Herd immunity, mm-hmm. most people say when you get around 60% of the population that's immune, then it stops spreading. So that one person doesn't infect two because there's not enough people out there to infect. And so, and so herd immunity is a second part. Um, and so to get herd immunity, though, a lot of people have to catch the virus, right? And then the third thing yeah. would be a really effective treatment that makes people better so quickly and, and, and keeps them not only from dying, but keeps them from spreading it. So one of those three things would have to happen. And, and I got to tell you that the vaccine and this and super effective treatments, not, it's not like it's around the corner. And so yeah. I think, again, coming out very carefully, preventing that large, huge new spike and just, and just having cases trickle in over several months is the best way to do it. So we slowly build up that herd immunity while we're waiting for a vaccine or a treatment. That's that's the only solution. So sort of like Sweden has done. And, uh, you know, there's different approaches around. Have you studied what Sweden is up to? Absolutely. I'm, I'm a big yeah. fan of what Sweden had done. If, if yeah. I had crafted a plan, I, I kind of would have tried the Sweden model. And I'm glad Sweden tried it so we have something to compare. And if you look, their rates of death are slightly higher than other European countries, are actually lower than some of the European countries, slightly higher than ours. If you look at deaths per million, um, but if you look at number of people infected, they they're getting this cadre of young people infected, so that I, Sweden will not, I don't believe, have a second wave uh, because they're all going to catch it during the first wave. When I say they're all going to catch it, they've done an excellent job of keeping the older and the vulnerable people separated, and that's that's what we have to do as part of our yes. plan. Yes. But they're not even wearing masks. So yes. I think if we come out of this with a Sweden type uh, situation where we keep the the older people still under isolation and we keep the the uh, the people with multiple health problems of vulnerable people isolated let everyone else out but with the addition of wearing masks and then with that social distancing indoors i think that's which is even stricter than sweden i think we have a really good chance of doing a good job with this i really do you know what's interesting to me about the coverage from sweden uh i did this yesterday in fact i went back because i'd read some early stories about it and they were very positive about 
what they were attempting to do and, and the logic behind it, the science behind it. And, and they seem to be you know, completely aligned in term, from the leadership of Sweden through the, through the professional medical community, et cetera. But then for a period of weeks, I read lots of stories and I went back, and, and the stories essentially sent the message to me that they were doing this wrong, and that it would, you know, their death rate was going to be outrageous, and blah blah blah. Well, I went back the other day, and I yesterday, and I reread some of those stories, and what it was was prognostications from journalists about what they thought was going to happen, when in fact that's not what has happened. I mean, like you said, slightly. Slightly uh, more than ours in terms of death per million, slightly less than in Europe, right? Less than the deaths in Europe. But you got Europe, you had, you know, places like Italy, for example, were just overwhelmed because of how close they are together, the, the, the age, the demographics of the people who are involved. Um, I think clearly what we're watching in front of our eyes right now, literally in front of our eyes, is a slow move toward the Sweden model. Right. And, if, and everybody's got to play their role. That is for sure. And uh, you still see people out there not playing their role. And I hope we can somehow get the message across that if you want a vibrant economy again, you, every single person has a role to play because all it takes is one who becomes an asymptomatic carrier. And we got a problem again, don't we? Yeah, exactly. And so um, I, I agree. I think everyone is eventually going to do what Sweden did in some variants. Like I said, even with the addition of masks. And this is also very regional. As you point out, you know, the EU is about the same size as the United States. And so if you look at the EU, you, you highlighted those countries that are doing a, a terrible job if you look at, you know, mortality rates, et cetera. But then look at, uh, you know, look at Germany. Germany has a really low rate. And, and in fact, though, but just think about the United States. If we took New York out of the equation, New York City especially, yeah. we, would be, we would be one of the best countries as far as, as rates per million and deaths per million. And so I think that we need to just step back and realize, okay, inner cities, especially ones with with uh, subways and, and um, mass transit, where a lot of people are clustered together in, in tight indoor spaces, that, those are going to be the particular vulnerable cities. Other places like this, where it's more wide open, we have uh, warm weather and a nice breeze, we shouldn't end up like New York City here. Um, but again, yeah. it doesn't mean we relax everything, but, but the, the, the epidemic needs to be treated differently in different regions, for sure. It's it's almost cruel, though, that places like New York, where you have such congestion of people and people flying from all over the world. And now that we now know for this really too long a period of time, we didn't understand the beast that we were dealing with for, for weeks and that it was being injected into these major you know, city centers. And this beast was already here. I mean, we, we can all we can talk politically all day long about about we should have done this and we should have done that. But the fact is, uh, it was already injected in America and was going to run its course in a very specific way. And there's no way to stop it. Hey, let's do this. We're going to come back after the break and just continue this conversation. I'm really appreciating your your sort of practical contribution to the conversation, and I, I know that other people will as well. So we'll be back with Dr. Conger right after this break. Subscribe for free to the Coast View Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to the people that help make the coast such a unique place to live. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. 
Welcome back. We've got Dr. Nicholas Conger here, just having a great conversation about his knowledge of the situation. He's such a he's got a, such a practical point of view about it, and he's looked at what's happening around the world. We talked about Sweden, and we talked about. I mean, it was almost cruel in a way, doctor, when you think about the fact that they knew in China so much about this that we didn't we didn't know for too many weeks, and as a result, it was being injected into most of our big cities. And it's in, in New, New Orleans, you know, I spent a lot of time in New Orleans, uh, love New Orleans. And I mean, I think Mardi Gras was not a good thing for them. Tell, tell me what, what, what's your thoughts about that? You're right. You know, and, and, and it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback. I don't think anyone at the time was saying we need to cancel Mardi Gras. So I, I don't didn't know. I'm being critical about we did. that. Yeah, we didn't know. We didn't know the extent and we didn't know how contagious this was. But I do think that if you look at when the cases started trickling in, in New Orleans, it was within one to two weeks of Mardi Gras. So I think people who had it around the country came to New Orleans and brought it there, mixed with people from all over the country. And so I think they not only brought it to New Orleans, and that's why you had that spike in cases in New Orleans, but then people got it there and exported it around the country. And I have friends who are infectious disease doctors in cities around the country, and a lot of them said their first couple of cases were, were people who returned from Mardi Gras. So I think that not only brought it to New Orleans, but it exported around the country. I think epidemiologically, when when all the dust is settled, we're going to realize that that's kind of what happened to the country. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, I hate the politicization politicization of all of this because it's it's such wasted in, energy. We should all be focused on educating people and responding and doing everything we can to continue to limit the impact on medical facilities, which I think we've done a fairly good job of that in Mississippi. Um, so, you know, the long and short of it is, you know, we've got still a lot of work to do and we got to be focused. You know, one of the things that really upsets me, though, and I just want to get your thoughts about it. I heard yesterday that over 12,000 people have died in long, long-term long care facilities. Right. Um, how I can see that happening early on. Right. But the fact that it continues to happen today, how in the world is that happening? We, we've been we've been preaching from the very beginning. We got to protect our vulnerable. How could there not be like fail safe measures in place to protect the vulnerable? I don't understand. Help me understand that. Well, you know um, that that's absolutely <clears throat> true. And when this virus first hit, one of the first things I said was that I said I think this is, can go down in history is the nursing home virus. And that, that's my concern. Um, we, we do know how contagious it is. And what we're seeing is when it gets into a nursing home, um, you know, there's there's caretakers there and there's there's you know people who clean the rooms and, and it just seems to spread like wildfire. So you have the vulnerable population, the ones most likely to die from it. And, and, uh, and again, there seems to be this uh, spreading before a lot of symptoms. And so, so um, you know, Either the patients themselves, or the caretakers, or the or the, the people cleaning the rooms are going room to room to room, spreading it. And once it gets in, it's really hard to get out. So you know, I'm I'm particularly interested in this. We have not been hit hard at the memorial system. Um, with with to the east of us, they've been hit hard. In New Orleans, they've been hit hard. We have not been hit hard. And I and I think it's because we've not had a major outbreak in our nursing homes. If yeah. we had multiple nursing homes in our region we would be overwhelmed with patients right now. And so I'm actually being very proactive about this. We have our task force meetings and as a group, we've been talking about it. And we're actually at, waiting for some national guidance or state guidance. And finally, you know, yesterday we said, let's just do our own guidance, which is we're gonna start trying to test our nursing home employees once a week. Because if we have one asymptomatic young person working in that nursing home, they could spread it to multiple patients before they know it. And so if we start testing our nursing home employees once a week, if, if we have the means, if we have the testing, and, and we have a chance of keeping it out of them 
then that would be that would do, I think, more for the epidemic than, than a lot of other things we could be doing as far as using tests. I had a good visit with Kent Nico, and he told me a lot about the early testing uh, efforts that you had, guys had underway. But you know, that's one of the stories for Memorial, isn't it? That you guys have been pretty aggressive with testing from the very beginning on this. You know, setting up your what do you call them the the remote testing facilities and drive whatever drive up clinics. Yeah, well, yeah that was uh, Kent. Yeah. Is, Kent's been phenomenal. He's been so supportive of all the efforts that we've been doing, and we stood up the, our task force. You know, weeks before there were even cases. Um, uh, to prepare for this. And even despite those efforts, we had trouble getting tests, but we did. We tested early. We tested often. Um, you know, there is a role for case identification and and, uh, and then trying not to let it spread around those contacts. But again, this virus makes it hard with those asymptomatic transmitters, um, but there is a role for that. And and we we haven't had tons of cases down here, and it's not for lack of looking. You know, we, mm-hmm. we've done over 3,000 tests easily, and we found about 200 cases. And so our positive test percentage rate has been less than 10% the entire time. So we're testing, you know, nine negative people or nine and a half negative people for every positive test. So we've been looking. So let me do this. We're, we're, we're going to come back in a, in a week or two and talk to you again. But before we leave, we have maybe a minute. What I want you to do is tell people why they cannot drop their guard. Right. So we, So it's the exponential growth, okay? And so if we want to get out there and if we want to revive the economy, in my opinion, being outdoors is fine. But you got everyone, in my opinion, should be wearing a mask indoors, conducting business. I mean, period, because there are people who are shedding it with virus without knowing it. And so you're not really wearing the mask to protect yourself. You're wearing the mask in case you're the one that's transmitting it when you're talking, when you're coughing, et cetera. So if we if we just wear masks indoors and don't congregate in large groups, and the vulnerable stay inside, I think we're going to be good. I think. Well, I appreciate it. Hey, listen, you're first of all, you're a masterful communicator. <clears throat> I appreciate your passion for the conversation. I really can't can't wait to talk again, but I really appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you so much. And I, and I appreciate the, the opportunity to, to speak a little bit longer about these su- the subjects. So thank you. You, you bet. We'll, we'll do it again soon. Thank you very much. Take care. You can also listen live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say, Alexa, open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.